So thanks for joining us today. And um, you are Evan Haber is uh, a senior software engineer and human computer interaction practitioner at Couchbase in San Francisco. He has a PhD in computer science where he concentrated on designing user interfaces for databases. That is super cool, I have to say. I, I want to read your PhD thesis right now. He uses ethnographic methods, user surveys, and interviews in his field studies to identify pain points in the products he and others build. And he also designs tools to help his users deal with complexity. So not only do you study people, but you build stuff as well. So super cool. So before Couchbase, Dr. Haber spent 12 years working at IBM Almaden Research Center on social media analytics, human computer interaction for complex systems, and he studied system uh, administration. He is one of the co-authors on the definitive book on IT sysadmins, their tools and work practices. And this book is called uh, Taming Information Technology. And thanks again to Nicole for suggesting this book to me. I didn't know about it and it's a great book. And our class read the second chapter uh, today for as a base for our discussion. And in his own words, Dr. Haber is deeply motivated to apply technology to make people's lives better, yay which fits very well into our course, as one of our course aims is to understand how to bridge the gap between human and technical aspects in software engineering. So welcome to our course. Um, so I wanted to start off by saying that I really enjoyed reading, uh, actually I read a couple of chapters or three chapters or so of your book, and it's a great book and you do a fantastic story or job of telling the story uh, to non-technical people about something that's really, really complex. I really like the way you kind of split off some of those ideas in sidebars. And uh, so it would be great if you would maybe just spend a few minutes telling us about your research and your study and your book, and then we could uh, ask you some questions. Yes, so um, that sounds great. I, I do want to just spend about five minutes kind of situating that piece of work uh, so you can understand where it came from and, and where it went. Um, and then I took a look at your questions. You got a lot of really good questions and I tried to do a little bit of a sorting exercise and um, I'll, I'll, I'll address the sort of the big issues from your questions and then we can dive into specific, more specifics. Um, so to start off, um, you know, I just wanna say, um, you know, uh, you did a good job with my background. Uh, I think one one aspect that I wanted to add about my background is that while I'm a practicing uh, software engineer, I never actually got any training in it. So I'm really glad to see that software engineering is part of the curriculum now. Um, back in the 80s and 90s, when I was in school, one could uh, go all the way through computer science. And even if you were building huge systems, uh, there was there was not any specific training in software engineering. You had to sort of pick that up as you went along. So I, I'm, it, it's so nice to see it formalized and uh, um, actually made part of what you guys are learning. Um, yeah, so uh, after I got my PhD, I did spend a number of years in industry and then research. And now I'm back in industry applying everything I learned while I was in research. Um, the biggest point I want to make to you all sort of relates not only to this week, but also to several weeks ago when you were talking about experimental methods, and that is ethnographic field studies are amazing. If you ever have any chance to go on an ethnographic field study to, to do a deep study on uh, work practices of people using um, computers, do it. Uh, you know, even, even if you have to go out of your way, take time, even after you have to push uh, for permission to do it, it it is, I've never 
I had so much fun really learning about all the things that these people are doing. And I mean, you know, our studies were very short. Um, you know, a, a traditional anthropologist is going to go out for six months or a year or two years and really embed themselves in a culture. We, we would go out for usually a week at a time. And sometimes we'd go back for repeat visits. Um, and, and, but I think, you know, there's a big difference between um, interviewing somebody in a lab or interviewing somebody in their office, then you get a little bit of contextual inquiry. But then if you actually follow them around, especially with a video camera for like all day, you know, they, 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 they can do show and tell for an hour. They can do show and tell for two hours, but pretty soon they've got to do their get to work. And then, and then you actually get to see not only how they're using, you know, the tool you're concerned with, they, you can also see how they're interacting with other people, how they're working around the tool that, you, that you've provided because it doesn't do everything they need, how they're using other tools in, in combination with it. So uh, it, it is just, it's a wonderful tool. It's, it, it's a big effort, but you can learn tremendous amounts. Um, you know, one of the things that about our study, I mean, if you, you, you all read chapter two, there's an incredible amount of detail there because we were shooting video the whole time. So this, this, these studies were from you know, 2002 to 2005, so a long time ago. Some of you may not have been born or, or were little babies when we were doing these studies. But you know, we, we had stacks and stacks of video cassettes. We, we were you know, just putting in new videos and, and recording. Um, but that is how we were able to um, get all that dialogue. All that dialogue is right off the tape. All, the, all of the commands that the people were typing were because we had a camera pointed at their screen. So we could say, oh wait, he just got, a, he got an instant message from somebody. Oh wait, he just got... Um, so you know, we, we were collecting a huge amount of detail and it would take a tremendous amount of time to analyze, but, it, but you learn so much. So it's, it, it's, it's really valuable. Um, one thing to, you know, as background, about 2001, IBM decided that IT was too labor intensive. They were spending too much money on people. And so they wanted to develop autonomic systems that could configure themselves and, and heal themselves when they break. And uh, we're not there yet. So maybe someday, but, um, but the reason we were out there do doing field studies was because IBM wanted to understand these work practices so that they perhaps could automate them. And in the end, I think they, they realized that maybe that's not so easy. Um, and indeed, IBM just a few weeks ago announced that they're spinning off their IT management business. So uh, I think they might have perhaps given up on, on some aspects of that. Um, you know, so, so we did these, these studies 2002 to 2005 or six. Uh, we wrote the book between 2008 and 2012. Um, it, there was a lot of analysis, a lot of details. Um, and, and with four co-authors, we had a lot of work to come to a unified voice between all of us. Um, you know, at the time we did our studies, IBM would be would have been the perfect candidate for DevOps because they employed tens of thousands of sysadmins, um, and uh, they were selling IT infrastructure management as a service. They also sold uh, IBM, or they also sold infrastructure software such as uh, databases, uh, web application servers, you know, DB2, Tivoli, WebSphere, all these products that are now uh, sort of fading in the past, but they were, um, but they would also manage other people's software. And, and so th they could have benefited tremendously from better integration between the products and the service delivery. But that wasn't 
an idea yet. <laughs> it, it came later. Um, so let's see. Uh, chapter two, which you read, uh, one of my favorite chapters because I wrote most of it, but also <laughs> because it was one of the first studies that we did. And I wasn't actually on this study, but uh, some of my colleagues went out, they did the study, they came back with all this video, they did a sort of a first pass on it, they drew a bunch of conclusions, but then I sat down and I started going over the video in incredible detail. I transcribed everything, all, all the dialogue, um, everything that was written on the screen. I actually wrote my own video transcription tool because um, it's a very slow process otherwise. And, and I learned that you know, what our initial, our initial conclusions were completely backwards that what we understood from the first watching of the video, there was so much more going on. So that, so I love, I love that this is sort of, it's such a rich story. It makes, it takes a whole chapter to describe. There's probably a hundred lessons in this one chapter on how to design systems better, how to design, um, you know, not only technical systems, but systems of people. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, the big picture is you know, systems are complex, people are specialized, and so collaboration is mandatory. But then there's you know, 100, 100 sub um, le lessons in there. Now, I mean, so I'm gonna shift over first to what I saw in your questions, and I'll just talk about a, a couple things, and then I'll, then I'll go one-on-one -on -one and answer your questions in detail. Um, you know, there was an, Questions. Uh, there are two questions really about about company culture and how to make things work better. Um, and I think you know the big problems that we saw in this particular episode were that we had one primary person who had access to the system, and everybody else's view of the system was um, was mediated through him. And what we really need is we need a much more shared collaborative environment where multiple people can see a, a common view of the system and can use that as an affordance to work around and can say, hey, what about this? What about this? So instead of sending error messages, they all could see the same thing. Um, and I think also more of a culture of shared ownership, shared success, a willingness to learn, to question and be questioned. And there was some of that there, but it wasn't as strong as it needed to be. Um, there was a question about improving education of software engineers. Uh, because you know, documentation and error messages are not included in, in the curriculum. And I think that that was a problem that we saw over and over again. Um, error messages are really hard. Uh, error messages sometimes have to be fixed months before the rest of the code because they're going to be translated into 27 different languages. Um, so that's, you know, it, it, it is a hard problem, but it should be treated as a hard problem like the other hard problems that we teach um, our students about. Um, social skills, somebody brought up social skills. Social skills are tremendous. We didn't see anybody working alone. Every, you know, every, these systems are so complicated that there's nobody who understands everything that we saw. I mean, there were probably instances of that in the world, but I think in the enterprise setting, you had different people who had to specialize in different aspects of these applications. The applications were made up of many, many moving pieces, all from different vendors. Um, and so the people had to work together. They had to learn how to work together. Um, so everybody needs to communicate. Um, 
you know, there were several questions about strategies to build common ground, um, how to align mental models, improve co collaboration, how to debug people as well as systems, how to find out who knows what. Um, there, and, and also, you know, related to those questions, questions about, well, these people had relatively primitive communication tools compared to what we have now. Um, my own thought on that is that the, the biggest idea coming out of this research was that we needed um, tooling, we needed something like social media, but integrated with the system status and logging. So that um, if you come into this, if you come in in the morning and you see that, you know, oh, there's a red light on because there were all these errors. Well, somebody was probably talking about those errors, but right now, those the, all the discussion of those errors is in a different channel. Really, the, those two things should be in the same place. There should be an error in the system status, and that, and then any discussion of that error should be in the same place. So you could see, oh yeah, five admins noticed that already. They talked about it. One of them restarted the system. Um, you know, or they you know hear the list of things that have been tried so far. Um, like, some common place where yeah. everybody could go. Could I jump in on that actually? Because yes. the, the question uh, that I wanted to ask you, I've studied a lot um, social media use and software development and different uh, the different channels that are used and the different affordances. And I'm wondering if you, and you've studied social media. So I'm, I'm wondering if you think um, if today's social media or social communication channels that developers use today, would they have addressed this or is this still an unsolved problem, would you say? I, I think it's still unsolved, but I mean, since I haven't been out in the field, I mean, you know, so I think screen sharing would help. We, we've lowered the barrier to screen sharing, but we still have a, a situation where the person facing the system is not necessarily sharing access to the system. They're just sharing uh, artifacts from that system. And I think that if, if if the people who are who are working on a system can can get a common view can can dive in together, I think that that's something that that I don't think is quite there in the social media tools that we have right now. Um, you know, at, I mean, at the time we thought, okay, shareable representations of system state. You know, so not just copying and pasting an error message, but actually looking at a live representation on the screen. I think that that would have been hugely helpful. Um, one person asked, you know, can cloud computing help? Because this was at a time when cloud computing was much more primitive. And I, my, my thoughts on that are that, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter whether your server is a physical machine in the next room or a virtual co construct halfway around the world. Uh, the problems, at least that we saw, were that these systems were complex idiosyncratic constructions made of many components and the, you know, so, so the cloud isn't necessarily the solution, you know, improved, improved uh, things like, you know, Puppet Chef, uh, Kubernetes, you know, tools like that are going to get us closer, where you can have well-defined uh, combinations of many, many system components and define the operations that you want on those. Um, and I think taken far enough, that could help many of these problems. Although, I mean, I think some of the things that we saw in the field were emergent problems where somebody would upgrade one of the 20 components in a system and the new version had an undocumented feature or bug that would cause um, 
an error to pop up in a different component of the system. And so, <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's still a need of people who are experts in different parts of the system to be able to come together and understand why certain behavior is happening. Um, there was another another pair of questions about AI and automation. You know, automation is a huge aspect of these people's work practices. Um, you know, AI. I think. Uh, yeah, I've I've given a lot of thought about how AI. You know, because because this whole research was founded on the idea of autonomic systems that could, that could manage themselves. Um, and I think the, the fundamental problem here is that IT systems exist to serve a human end, a business goal, something in somebody's head. And when we have AI systems that can understand what those human goals are and, and evaluate whether or not the system is achieving those goals, then AI can help. But until then, the definitions of, of a system behaving properly are, are very low level. And so you, know, you, you can automatically restart a system under certain circumstances, but, but knowing whether a system is working properly to meet your business goals is, is, is still, uh, still we're not there yet. Um, let's see. As far as how things have changed with DevOps, unfortunately, I haven't been in the field, so I would I would love to be able to spend some time and see how things have changed with the advent of De DevOps. Um, uh, I'd like to hope it's better, but I don't know for sure. I think it, it seemed you know one of the things from our studies seemed to be that that cut that companies want to build the most complicated system that they possibly can afford. And as the capabilities grow, then they say, well, we want to make it even more complicated. <laughs> so I think that, that, that there seems to be some kind, some, some sort of race um, that, um, that, that I, I, I hope our ability to come up with structures to manage it will eventually get there. And I mean, you know, there are certainly domains where automation in, has worked. You know, uh, our our jet aircraft that we fly on, hopefully some of the time from place to place, um, are most of that is automated because the the behavior of a jet aircraft is the same as it was 50 years ago, and it's very well known and understood. And I mean, even then, you still have problems like the 737 Max, where there was a small corner case that they didn't allow for properly, but. Um, and, and IT systems, they're so much more varied than, than a jet aircraft, which, you know, the air is going to be the same, you know, the, 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 in, a, in a business setting, you know, they're, they're going to plug different things in and, and want different capacities and um, different business goals. So um, automation is going to continue to be a challenge. Um, Let's see. Um, and then the last question was a question about a shotgun approach, which George was taking versus something more methodical to solve a problem. We certainly saw both. Um, we saw some, I mean, there, there was this wonderful practice we saw among database administrators of rehearsing a, ch a change where they might have a limited period of time to make a change to a database system. And they would actually rehearse that change on a test system for a week up to the time when they had to make the change to make sure that they absolutely understood every command that was part of that change. And um, yeah, so, so there's, there is a lot of, of uh, methodology that these people develop. Um, 
But sometimes when things go wrong, that's that's when you have the shotgun approach. That's when you try and recruit as many people as you can and get as many viewpoints um, and try and solve the problem as quickly as possible. So that, that, that was my take on the questions that I saw. And now I'm happy to spend the rest of the time answering you know, one-on-one -on -one, any or Great. anything more you have to. Wow, you just you 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 covered off so many, and there were a lot, um, as you saw. And uh, thank you for asking me to share those with you, so that you could. I, I'm very impressed that you spent the time going through them and and answering them. I think we could probably open it up here and and let uh, the students just jump in with any follow-on questions or some maybe that that uh, they had uh, they wanted to know a little bit more about. I noticed Zane, um, you had a question. I'm not sure if we covered that one. Did we cover your question? I actually kind of want to ask a different question. Go for it. All right. I, was, okay. I was just prodding you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, um, I, a question regarding um, the uh, uh, well, the encouragement for more ethnographic studies, and I guess in a sense, um, one of the uh, really powerful things about chapter two I find is the really the richness of the details provided, but at the same time, I wonder. Um, were, were the, did the participants realize at the time how much of the details would be released, like uh, published? And I'm wondering, uh, given that uh, you know recording tools and transcription tools are probably more readily available, so in a sense, ethnographic studies may be a little bit easier. But then at the same time, are you know participants more willing or you know less willing to uh, receptive to the idea of being recorded and having that data published? Yes, yeah, so I think the most of our studies were done within IBM and that lowered the barrier to getting permission because we were all employees of the same company. And we did change all the names. We did obscure identity. We removed any uh, personally identifiable information. And so, um, but there were studies that we tried to do that we couldn't do because there were disagreements about, for example, who owned the resulting data, who owned uh, what, what could be done with the, uh, with the videotapes that were taken. Um, so I think um, the people, I mean, it was a little bit funny. I, I think the people, I think they, they, they seemed really happy to have somebody paying attention to their work and wanting to help them. And the flip side of that is that when we showed the videos to developers with an IBM who developed the software that these people were, were using, the developers had never seen somebody in the wild using their tools before. And so it was so eye-opening for the developers that I think the, the, the end users were happy to know that they were going to be able to influence the developers in making tools better. Now, I mean, we were in a special case where we could actually say, yes, we're gonna actually go talk to the developers later and highlight this. Um, and we did, we, I mean, we did, we did have follow-up interviews with all of our participants to talk about what we'd learned and ask them how things had changed since the time of our study, between the time of our study and the time of the book. And you know, nobody was hesitant, but perhaps they, you know, anybody who'd be hesitant would have been filtered out at the, at the beginning of the process. Okay. Any follow-up yeah. to that? But yes, it, it, it is hard, but it's worth doing. 
Yeah, I've, I've done some ethnographic studies as well, and it's just so incredibly rewarding. Uh, it's hard to write, though. It's hard to, you know, publish it for people who are trying to do degrees and so on. But uh, but so rewarding. Thank you for for saying that. And we haven't learned a lot about ethnographic studies in this class, so I'm really glad that you focused on that. Anybody else want to jump in with some questions? I can pull from Slack here, or you know, just jump in. Let's pretend we're in the classroom. <laughs> what a thought. <laughs> Anybody want to jump in? I can give I can give you ethnographic study pointers <laughs> if, oh, that if nobody be... has any questions. Which you know, so so for us we had because this was almost twenty years ago we had video cameras that required a fair amount of monitoring. So we had to have one person just operating the camera, making sure it was pointed at whatever was going on. Um, so pointed at the screen, or somebody comes into the room, we want to point it at them. We wanted to get be able to get the whole context. And then we had somebody else who just sat there taking notes so that we would know, oh, wait, at this such and such a time, we want to go back there and pay attention. Um, we tried not to ask any questions while things were going on. We would wait until an, something had ended or it was much, much later in the day. Um, and then just allow enough time. You know, so, so George, we followed him around for a whole week. And uh, we couldn't always do that, but but it allow at least a day. It, it, people really will try and do show and tell for an hour, but but eventually they have to get to work, and then you get to see what's really going on. Yeah, that's great. I was actually one of, that was one of the questions I had was the two weeks enough, you know, to see everything that you needed to see. Well, all the time, people said, "Oh, you should have been here last week. There was this amazing thing that happened." <laughs> But I mean, yeah, there, there, are, there are limits to, uh, you know, how much, you know, uh, transcribing video is hugely time consuming and understanding what went on. And uh, yeah. so. Yeah, thanks for those tips. Um, many of the challenges faced by George and Ted were a matter of misunderstanding between the two of them and fewer were due to a lack of technical expertise. So what can companies or even post-secondary institutions do to provide effective collaboration and communication policies and skills? Do you have any insights on that? Well, I think um, the, the approach that we took to that was more, I mean, you know, we, we saw deficiencies in the tools that they were using that the people clearly wanted to communicate with each other, but there were, you know, the, the tools were insufficiently rich to really share the full context of what was going on. And so we did spend a lot of time thinking about, well, how could, how could the tools be better? Um, you know, I'm not sure I can think of an example where I saw the people not wanting to communicate or not not you know sort of I, I think they were doing the best they could with with what they had now that said um it's certainly worth thinking about are are there are there uh, cases where um communication can be improved just through you know in, in, or rather improving the skill the communication skills of the participants and I don't have any good insights on that, so I guess I'll stop there. 
I, actually, a, a follow-on question I had uh, for you as well is, you know, what? How did what you learned through these studies at IBM of the cis admins kind of influence who you are today and how you how you work in Couchbase, right? Like the kind of work that you do and yes. and how that's going. So, so, Presumably, you're working from home now too, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, yes, here here I am sitting uh, upstairs in a semi-finished barn because uh, it gets me out of the house because my wife is working from home in the house and we have a small house. So. Um, I think you know, how it's how it's influenced me is that I at least I, I, I don't know how accurate it always is. And I always try and oh, let's see, I guess I'll take a step back. Step one is I'm much more interested in the end users. And so whenever I have a chance to meet a customer, I want to ask them, OK, well, what's the best thing? What's the best thing about using our tool? What's the worst thing about using our tool? Those are those are great questions. You know, you, you never say, "How do you like our tool?" You say, "What's the biggest pain point?" Mm -hmm. Or, "Why what why do you use our tool over the competition?" Um, you, there 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 are yeah asking asking good questions is something that you you can learn. But yeah, so so one thing out of this is that I am much more engaged and take every chance I can to learn from end users. Um, two is that I develop uh, an understanding in my head of the work practices of these people. I understand that they are not just using the tool I have created. They, they are using the tool I created in a broader context. What is that context? I try and find out. Um, you know, I, the the most um, you know a, a a tiny but instructive example of this is. Um, you know, the company I work for produces a NoSQL database that has a query language that is kind of like SQL. So um, people are doing ad hoc querying. And I've spent lots of time ad hoc querying as a, somebody who worked in databases. Um, and I have worked, I have a good picture in my head of a lot of other people. And so I realized, okay, well, a lot of the GUIs for doing ad hoc querying, you run a query, you see the result, and then the query is gone. And the, the, there's no state in the UI. Um, whereas, a lot of sysadmins, they're always on a command line because they can scroll, they're always scrolling up and down and saying, oh, what did I do two steps ago? What did I do three steps ago? What was the result of that? Copy, paste. So I made sure that we had a query interface that was not stateless. It had, it has a complete history. It saves the person's history. So if they want to go back to something they did yesterday or the day before, they can scroll back or look for it and bring it back and try modifying it and using it again. So you know that that's the kind of thing that is not common in database interfaces that came out of my spending time watching their complicated work practices. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I think too often empirical studies of software engineering, they they sort of reduce everything down to this tiny question and then look at the way the tool is used in a very, very sort of confined context. And you can't really learn that much, right? You need to consider the whole kind of ecosystem and how the other tools and the other people play a role in that. So thank you for emphasizing that. Um, Jordan just actually asked a question in the chat. So we'll let Jordan have the last question with you today, um, Eben. Uh, Jordan, did you want to jump in? Sorry, sure. I should have warned you. I, uh, yeah, I just wrote in the chat. Um, I was curious what your take was on collaboration in software ecosystems. So I think 
there's a lot of aspects that may not work as well in traditional means, like for instance, synchronizing product strategies um, across partner companies. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Um, I guess so. So, from my, you know, from our studies at IBM, we we saw that across software ecosystems, there there wasn't enough. That each that each system seemed to be designed as if it was the only one that was ever going to be used. And so I think, uh, let's see. I guess I would say it is an area uh, ripe for further research and development. Um, it de desperately needed that. Um... Great. Maybe that's something Jordan will look at. She's going to start a master's soon. So probably just yeah. of hers, right? So with that, Evan, thank you very much for the, the lovely overview at the beginning and taking the effort to go through all of the students' questions and try to make sense of them and, and answer them. I think uh, they really enjoyed reading your paper and enjoyed meeting you today. And well, I, 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 the questions were great. I, I, I had not picked up that book in four or five years, so it was great to read it, read the chapter <laughs> again and, and, and see everybody's responses to that. So, so thank you for that. Yeah, fantastic. So I'll just get everybody to join me in uh, clapping hands or <laughs> the little thing that we do. Yeah, or I emojis. I know we're getting we're getting pretty good at this. Right? <laughs> Thank you very much.